This is Second Life Student Ministry Podcast. So since this quarantine has us locked up right now and you can't come to the Word, I'm going to bring the Word to you. So we're going to start up a new series. And see, in this in the Bible, it defines works as a part of our life in Christ. Nothing we do can earn salvation is a gift from God. However, James 2.17 says in the same way faith if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. In other words, although works can't bring salvation, once we're saved, our works show and prove our faith. And like things we work hard at every day, our works in Christ are inevitable, and they have their ups and downs. Well, in this series, we're going to discuss the seven churches in the book of Revelations, all their ups and all their downs, and try to decipher what it is that God wants us to know. Now, sometimes we don't understand a movie until the end. Good storytellers take us on a journey, revealing a little at a time, but not unveiling everything until the very end. Once we see the ending, the rest of the story makes sense. The book of Revelation is a perfect example of this truth. The Apostle John wrote the seven letters recorded in Revelations 2-3 through to specific churches in specific locations in ancient Asia Minor. Now these churches existed 2,000 years ago, but the storyteller, God himself, gave them and us a glimpse into the future through his revelation to John. We know this because throughout the seven letters, Jesus used the phrase, the one who conquers. Jesus used future tense to help the churches understand their present tense. Our only hope to be conquerors is to look at Jesus. The one who conquered sin and death for us. In him we can look out at our mission field, wherever that may be, with confidence knowing we can conquer because of the victory given to us in Jesus' finished work on the cross. Now we'll be beginning by looking at the church in Ephesus. The Ephesian Christians were excellent theologians. They stood firm against false teaching and fake Christians and they persevered through hard things. Through the surface looked shiny, Jesus knew they were rotting from the inside. They had forgotten how to love. This was the loveless church. Now, when Jesus told the church that he w- he's the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, in Revelations chapter 2, verse 1, he was telling them that he's intimately close to them. Jesus holds the entire church the universal body of Christ in his hand. And as he promised his disciples in Matthew 28, 20, he's still with us. He was so near to the Ephesian believers that he could clearly see their outward works. And with perfect knowledge as God in the flesh, he could also see their hearts. Through the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, we'll see again and again that Jesus noticed the works of these churches, and he often encouraged them to continue in their obedience. However, Jesus almost always pointed out needed improvements as well. See, we often don't work from pure hearts of what we do. Often we work because our future depends on it, or because our teachers are breathing down our necks. But even when we love what we do, we can get bored with the daily grind. The truth is, anything that becomes familiar can grow stale. 
we see this tendency in our own lives and the lives of others. Successful athletes often retire even when they have a few more years of tread on their tires because they lose their love for the game. Sometimes friendships or relationships end because people struggle to love one another. We can even get tired of our favorite desserts or our favorite foods. Now, Jesus' message to the church in Ephesus will highlight the importance of renewing our love for Jesus. Jesus was actually speaking to seven literal churches. They were in existence at the time of the giving of his revelation to the Apostle John. Jesus is actually speaking about how we can walk in the victory that he has secured for those who are part of the body of Christ. Jesus' warnings to the seven churches in the book of Revelation can give us hope and clearly regard principles that we can apply so that we can be those who conquer in this life because of the victory that's been given to us through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus is omniscient. He knows not only our words and our deeds, but he has full, exhaustive knowledge of even our innermost thoughts that we never express to anybody else. Now, he corrected the church in Ephesus in three ways. Three points. He told them to remember, to repent, and to return. Now, the reward for loving your Savior, Savior will always have you in eternal uninterrupted, intimate fellowship with him. So we're going to discuss those three points a little later on, but the most basic question we can ask when reading the letters of Revelation is, what's Jesus saying to me through these letters to the churches? The beginning of this book helps us to answer this question. In Revelations chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ who God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angels to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. As we see in this passage, this message is introduced as a revelation, an unveiling from God himself through Jesus. As with all scripture, God wants to tell us something directly through these words. If we take these words to heart, knowing Jesus could return at any moment, we'll be blessed. Now, when you think back to things God has revealed to you from scripture, how often do those things impact the way you live for God today? The things that you've heard and the things that you've read about and the things that you've been taught, do they really impact your life? Is the answer never? Is the answer sometimes? Is the answer always? How often does your life actually change due to what you learn in scripture? See, Jesus promised that we all have victory in this life through the victory he achieved on his in his life, death, and resurrection. Specifically, the way to gain this victory is through rekindling mm -hmm. our first love, the love we had for Jesus at first. This is the lesson Ephesus had to learn. 
The church was doing good works, but it was doing them with the wrong motivations. There's always that moment in a Christian's life where they first get saved and they completely fall in love with God. And they want to tell everybody about him and they just everything involves around God. But eventually it gets stale. Eventually church gets repetitive. Eventually the Bible gets boring and we just completely fade off into their own in our own ways of life. And we lose that love. That's what's happening to the church in Ephesus right here. But God wants them to rekindle that love. It's just like with the marriage. Nowadays, all these marriages end in divorce. Because people claim and say, oh, well, I no longer love that person. But it's not about whether or not you fall out of love. It's whether or not you want to work on the love to make sure it works. And that's what people are missing. So... Just like in marriage, you have to work at it. You have to keep that love fresh and you have to keep it alive and you have to keep going at it to make sure it doesn't die. Where our relationship with Jesus is the exact same way. We have to be willing to work at it. We have to be willing to build our relationship, to talk to him, to understand what he wants us to do. And that's what God is telling the church right now in Ephesus. It's not about... Your theology is not about what you know or how many scriptures you have memorized. It's about your love for me. Now, your parents expect that you'll have a certain, that you'll behave a certain way at home or even more so in public. Maybe you'll even hear them say, you better not embarrass me in front of my friends. Why? Because you bear the family name. And as a representative of your parents, they expect that you'll not only do what you not only do what you want, but that you'll also live according to the values and goals of your family. Now, in a similar way, God desires that we serve from a heart of love. He wants us to love the mission to which he calls us. Now, if you notice what Paul says in first Corinthians chapter 13, verses one through three. He says, if I speak human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions and if I give over my body in order to boast, but do not have love. I gain nothing. In this passage, Paul says that when we serve without love, we say nothing. We are nothing and we gain nothing. Everything we do must come from a genuine love for God and for others. We serve not out of obligation, not out of satisfaction, not out of recognition, but because of the great love God demonstrates to us. Now, how does this love shape the way that you serve him and others. If you really love God, then it should affect how you treat him, how you serve him and how you treat others. Like this, this whole situation going on nowadays with this toilet paper and all this stuff. And like people are being so selfish and so disregarding of the people that are actually in need, the elderly people that actually need the food And people are going and stocking up on every single little thing. And it's selfish. 
It's not how God wants us to treat others. Now is the time above all else where the people of God and the church of Christ should be generous and loving and caring to the people that are in need. And this is what God wants for all of us to love. There's this term that you can say, which is get saved and then get to work. Because basically in all churches, once you get saved, I mean, unless you're like a super mega church, but in a small church, if you get saved, then you're going to work. You're going to be put to work. Even in the big churches, in a certain way, you're going to work because this phrase is said either to explicitly or implicitly in many churches. It's said because once people place their faith in Christ, they're often given a list of rules and works to follow. Read the Bible, pray, go to church gatherings on Sundays, on Wednesdays, volunteer. You know the drill. Get to work and when you're tired, work some more. But surely there's more to following Jesus than a to-do list. See, from the onset of the letter to the Ephesian church in Revelations 2, it seems that the Ephesians were doing all the right things. Seeking to live in purity, rebuking false teachers, and laboring through hardships. Jesus even commended the believers for these things. Paul's beautiful letter to the Ephesians, decades before this was written, likely laid a deep foundation for their theology and identity. They knew right from wrong, and they knew how to work hard for the kingdom. Because Paul told them, if, if we read Revelations chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, then we'll see what John's writing to this church. He says, write to the angel of the church in Ephesus, thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. You have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name and have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Unless you repent. Yet you do have this. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. Who I also hate. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers... I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Notice that Jesus included both compliments and rebukes. He praised them for their strong doctrine, their defense of the faith, and their good ethics. Although Jesus was sincere in these compliments, the Ephesian believers were by no means perfect. They were practically running a theological training school. And they were standing firm against cultural pressures, but their love for Jesus had grown cold. They focused on the important work they were doing, but forgot why they were doing it. In James chapter 2, verses 14 through 19. What good is it, my brother and sisters, if someone claims to have faith, but does not have works? 
Can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you faith by my works. You believe that God is one. Good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. James was telling his audience that simply believing God is real doesn't save anyone. Even Satan and his demons know God exists. James took it a step further saying, Works are an integral part of showing and proving that we truly love God. Want to know whether your faith is real? Compare it to the command Jesus said that is the greatest. He said in Mark chapter 12, 30 and 31, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. This was the question the Ephesians needed to answer. Did they love God with their hearts and souls or just with their minds and strength? Jesus would provide the answer. He was so intimately near and involved in the lives of the Ephesians that he was able to say, I know your works, your labor and your endurance. Right off the bat, we see that these brothers and sisters got to work. It would be hard to say they had no faith if we merely looked at all the shiny fruit hanging from the vine. But Jesus sees the roots too. He sees our works for what it is. If they're motivated by love or if they're motivated by performance. Take a look at your own life. What might Jesus be pleased about concerning your works? What works do you do that are out of love and are out of good motivation and not out of getting recognition and out of getting a higher position or props that you want? Like, what is it that you do if you post a Bible verse? Is it to touch souls and to reach lives or is it to get likes or to get uh, comments? In what ways do you think your work for God demonstrates a lack of love for him? Like, what what can you be doing in your life that that shows that you don't that you're not your motivations aren't correct, that they're not for God, but they're for your own self gain? This was a busy congregation. They were doing a lot of work to defend the Christian faith and to maintain external purity. They toiled through hardships and maintained their endurance, finishing the work they set out to do. See, Jesus also commended the church for the good theology and willingness to remove false teachers from the congregation. Like Jesus, they hated the practices of the Nicolaitans. Nicolaitans. Not much of is known about the Nicolaitans, but some early Christian sources link them to sexual sin and eating meat sacrificed to idols. Now, they were people who claimed to be Christians, but abused God's grace. Their works weren't from faith, but from their desire to indulge in sin. The Ephesians didn't tolerate this hypocrisy. Now, no doubt it can be good to recognize sins in others. 
In First Corinthians chapter 5, Paul scolded the church for allowing someone to walk around in sin unchallenged. He even went so far as to recommend that they kick the man out of the church. The Ephesians followed Paul's actions with the, the Nicolaitans. Yet the Ephesians didn't recognize their own hypocrisy. They had become programmed machines going through the motions, but disconnected from the reason they existed in the first place. They knew the right doctrine, but struggled to love the God they were created to work for. Because we're all created in God's image, our good deeds are truly useful only if they are connected to his holy character. Yes, faith without works is dead, but works without living in faith in God is also worthless. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it says, Now without faith, it is impossible to please God, since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Jesus pointed out that works are good as long as they're truly motivated by faith and love. The Ephesians' works, however, were ultimately motivated by something other than love. Yet Jesus didn't leave the Ephesians, and he won't leave us. As we'll see, he provides us with grace and encouragement to love him passionately, and he promises that we'll live in his grace for eternity. Now, Jesus could have stopped with the compliments. He could have been happy with the Ephesians' good works, but he didn't stop there because their works weren't coming from the right motivation. Now, years before Jesus spoke this message to the Ephesian church, Paul had warned them not to forget why they did good works. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, he says, You are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift got from God not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Told the church in Ephesus that good works are a result of our faith in Christ. We're created to do good works for his glory, not our own. If we do good works for our own benefit, they lose their power. But if we do them because our love for Christ, they reveal the gospel's power. Now, Jesus didn't tell the Ephesians to return to their love for him. He told he didn't just tell them that he told them how to do it. He said in Revelations 2 verse 5, remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, first, Jesus told the Ephesians to remember. Many times in scripture, God reminded his children about the works he had done for them. He had to remind Abraham over and over and over again to solidify his faith. Because sometimes we have to be reminded. Sometimes we forget where God pulled us out of. We forget how we were and the person we were and the situations we were in before we found Christ. So he tells them to remember. Then he says, reflect on God's faithfulness in our lives 
it strengthens our love for him. So we have to reflect on who God is in us, how much we love him, how much he's done for us. Reflect on how much our lives have been changed because of him. And then when the Ephesians reflected on the love they had for Jesus at first, they would be able to see all he had done for them and all he's going to do in them. And secondly, Jesus told the Ephesians to repent. If they didn't, they would have their lampstand removed. They would no longer shine light on Ephesus as Christ's representatives. To repent is to turn away from sin and turn your eyes back on Christ. To return to the fundamentals of following him. The only chance the Ephesians had of returning to their love for Jesus and of continuing their ministry in Ephesus was to remember him and rely on him. In Revelation chapter 2 verse 7, it says, Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Jesus told the Ephesians what would happen if they returned to their first love. The promise Jesus made is powerful, even for the churches today. Those who conquer, who win the fight against a stale, loveless faith, will be, give, be given the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This tree of life shows us two, two key places in scripture. It, it speaks about this tree of life. Once in Genesis and once in Revelations. See, the tree of life was in the middle of the Garden of Eden before sin entered into the world. When Jesus, when Jesus told Adam and Eve not to eat from the tree of life, they disobeyed and introduced sin into the world. They lost their access to the tree of life because the consequence of sin isn't life but death. Yet after Christ returns and destroys sin and death, God's people will once again have access to the tree of life. One day, God will return the world to the way it was in the Garden of Eden. But even better, we'll feast on the fruit of the tree of life for eternity. See, Jesus told the Ephesians and us that maintaining a passionate love for him will allow us to eat from the tree of life for eternity. For those who love Christ, the promise of Revelation 22 is still available. Let's remind not only ourselves, but also the whole world of his glorious truth. Nowadays, times are getting really chaotic with this whole COVID-19 situation. And there's this thing going around on social media about Second Chronicles, where it says that there was wildfires and locusts and a plague over the earth and the only way to stop it is for the people who are called by his name to repent and that's in a way that's exactly what god was telling this church of ephesus to do to repent keep in mind Chronicles is saying the people that were called by my name meaning these are christian people these are christian churches these are good People who love God, but yet they still have a need to repent 
because their love for God has become stale. It's become empty. It's become a routine. And maybe this, I mean, whatever's going on these days, we need to take, we got to understand that God can make good out of every single situation. And in these hard times, when we're trapped in solitude, maybe now is the time that we can read our Bibles. Now is the time we can study. Now is the time we can pray. Now is the time we can build back that relationship with God and learn to love him how we loved him in the beginning. So no matter how bad things are getting, do not lose your love for God. Do not lose your faith. Do not let it get you down. But instead, trust in him in all things, because it's not about what this disease can do. It's not about what this virus can do, but it's about the God that you serve and how he can sustain you and how he can heal you and how he can provide for you. Trust in God and he will take care of you. So that's the, that's the end of this podcast. We're going to close in prayer. I hope that you heard it, you listened, and I hope it helped you in some way or another. Um, so if you can just pray with me, Father God, we just pray right now over this lesson. I pray that it touched some hearts and that it reached some people, Father God, that it spoke to them about finding a deeper love for you, Father. And we just pray over this country, Lord. We pray over the situation that's going on in this world, Lord. We pray over... Uh, we declare healing over this disease, Father God. We declare healing over anyone who is sick. And we put a stop to this, this contagiousness, Father God, that we just speak your healing, your grace, and your mercy over this entire situation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, guys. Be blessed.